Well, hello and welcome again to another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, the podcast where we take a look at the biggest events happening across the global sports industry, particularly through a lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, Sport Business U.S. Editor. And as always, I am joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week? Great, Eric. How are you doing? Good, good. Well, as we are taping this, the uh, the bomb has, has, that we were expecting has just dropped. We'll get into this in the uh, next segment, but the uh, NFL has completed its domestic uh, television rights renewals with all the incumbents. We'll discuss that in a lot more detail. It's also going to be a Le- very LeBron James heavy week where he did a couple of really landmark deals that we're very interested in. But first, we're going to have a really great featured interview with Lisa Baird, the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League. This is a property that's really uh, on the upswing here uh, in just in a year's time in, in her post. She's done a lot of remarkable things here. And so we're going to unpack what's going on in that league. And we'll come back on the other side. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have on Sport Business Finance Weekly as our guest this week, Lisa Baird, Commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League and one of the foremost leaders in the entire sports industry. Baird just passed her one-year anniversary in the NWSL leadership post, and under her guidance, the league has been on a very strong upswing in franchise growth and overall prominence in the global sports landscape. Having successfully staged its Challenge Cup last year amid the COVID-19 pandemic, They struck a landmark media rights agreement with CBS, landed a collection of new corporate partners, expanded into the key Los Angeles market, and and she helped attract a string of prominent team investors into the league. Baird came to the NWSL after successful senior-level stints with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the National Football League, IBM, General Motors, and several leading consumer products companies. Lisa, welcome to the program. Well, thanks. It's good morning. It's really great to be here. So as I mentioned, you you just hit the, the big one-year anniversary in, in your uh, current role. Looking back on that year and a, clearly a crazy year that you had no idea what was going to be happening when you took that post in February of last year, how would you reflect on this last year? Biggest uh, accomplishment, biggest disappointment? How would you assess the, the last year? Well, I, you know, it, it was a year for us of, you know, a lot of uncertainty a a lot of tension, a lot of stress, but also of great highs for the National Women's Soccer League. So for us, it was very much, you know, kind of ups and and peaks and some valleys too. So hard to kind of put one word on it though. Lisa, how how normal do you think this coming season will be? Meaning, you know, when do you think fans will be back in the stands? Are there other modifications you're implementing this year to still take into account COVID? How how normal or abnormal will this year be? Well, I think for us, it's the same thing, which is, you know, proceed with caution. While we're very hopeful that uh, the governor's and um, local health authorities will allow us to have fans in the stadiums. We are approaching it very conservatively out of respect to kind of the fans themselves, their safety, obviously our concern with our players, continued concern with keeping our players safe and well. So we'll have limitations on, uh, on fans in stadiums in all the places we play. Want to drill a little bit more specifically into your your big media rights deal with CBS that you finished up early after your arrival last year. 
a really uh, significant uh, commitment on their part to a women's professional sport. But from your standpoint, you just walk us through that deal, how it came together, how important it's been for the league and and how you sort of are assessing the um, division between the linear TV exposure that you get and then what you're getting on the streaming platforms. Yeah. You know, I want to say those deals were very, very far along as I stepped in in early March. And, you know, credit goes to our ownership. I think we had Octagon, Dan Cohen representing us on that and and some of the staff. So credit goes to them for putting the framework in place with a streaming partner and a U.S. Canadian broadcaster with CBS, which I think was smart to combine streaming for international and then having some global games where Twitch was the you know exclusive distributor, um, it allows us to kind of access both the power of linear television as well as the growing adoption of of streaming. And particularly, as we know, our fan base, while small, is extremely avid and will absolutely, as we saw during the Challenge Cup, access subscriptions to get behind the paywall. So I was really um, very pleased to see when CBS came out and they were talking about the importance of um, how properties can drive subscriptions at Paramount Plus, that they actually um, talked about soccer and the NWSL in that light. It's pretty promising for us. Lisa, Eric mentioned that you have brought in a number of high-profile owners in recent months, including Natalie Portman, Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, and others. What is the strategy there? How do these celebrities and high-profile athletes add additional value beyond just making an investment? Well, first of all, I don't want to underestimate. I don't want to, like I will state that in my conversations with them and um, bringing them in, they actually are interested in the investment. These are women, um, but also men, but women who are really just very, very bullish on the future of the NWSL and their investment. And I'm very pleased to have the round of investors that we've had, not only because they brought attention to the sport, particularly Angel City, but because they're showing that, you know what, I think that in the past, pro, having a an investment into a pro sports team was only retained for the few very, very wealthy or old families who'd been involved in franchises for decades. And now we're seeing a new round of investors come in and it's exciting. It shows the possibility that you can get involved in pro sports. The thing for us at the NWSL is not only um, the attention and obviously where you're invested in a team, the, the ability of investors to help increase teams resources, which are the most important. But I also think that you know, for us, having these women kind of associated and investing in women is is saying something I think really important about society right now, isn't it? You know, that women are betting on women. And I think that's an important statement. From a standpoint, obviously, that's a hugely important concept that you get into. But from a business standpoint, are there other things that they bring to the table, access to corporate leaders for potential sponsorships or facility access? Or what are some of the other elements that they might be able to assist you with? Well, I think, you know, for one, they're working very hard within their own teams to bring commercial success and marketing success. And you see that with already with um, Angel City and what they're doing with their, you know, even though they're very far away with their first round of season tickets and their first sponsorships that they've announced. So they're harnessing the power of their very famous ownership group to to sell that team. And Naomi, Naomi I think, has done a great job bringing some um, excitement to North Carolina Courage um, in that. 
But I, I also think that as we look at other owners coming in, they're going to bring intellectual firepower. Chicago just announced a recent uh, new class of investors. I've already had the privilege to talk to some of them on the phone. They may not be famous, but they're bringing a lot of ideas and excitement to me. It's another class of really good people that I can access as the as the commissioner as we look at future media deals and future ways to grow the league. So I'm actually pretty excited to do that. Alexis Ahanian, of course, being the majority investment investor in Angel City, along with his very famous wife, Serena. But like, you know, having access to Alexis is pretty amazing because we get to talk to him about all of the interesting things that are going on in the digital economy. In terms of uh, further expansion, Lisa, how many new teams do you expect to add in the next three or four years? And how much does it cost to buy a new uh, NWSL franchise? Well, Chris, that's that's a great question. It's one that we're studying right now with our ownership group. We right now we're we have we're welcoming in Louisville and Kansas City this season, and then Angel City and of course you know we have uh, an agreement with uh, Ron Burkle with um, another team in California. So the first priority is going to be getting those four launched successfully. That that's number four, and that we're a small league, so that takes a lot of resources at the league office to make sure that all the rules are right and and that. So that's number one priority. As we look forward at other markets, the biggest question we have is our player acquisition, our player pathway acquisition and retention. We right now hold the mantle of being the best women's professional soccer league in the world. And we want to continue to hold that mantle, meaning we have to attract and retain the best soccer players in the world. So how does that player pool expand and how do we do to make, what do we do to make sure that we're continuing to do that? And we're in the process of studying right that, that answer, which my product committee owes me and they're a little behind schedule. I'd like to remind them on the radio that I can name their names, Mm -hmm. um, but I won't out of deference. They need to give us that uh, view of the marketplace and that's going to determine the, the total number. As you're well aware, new and emerging leagues, uh, it, it can be a financially challenging situation for them during that initial growth phase. How would you sort of assess the overall financial health of the NWSL and what is sort of the pathway to profitability at this point? You know, that's what we're studying right now is we've been, we've successfully navigated the first nine years of our life. We're nine years old and we're um, this will be um, next year will be our 10th anniversary. So we're taking a step back. And we're doing a pretty important ground up piece of strategic planning work to say, what do those next 10 years look like from every um, every angle? Do we have the right rules? Do, how do we want to create more competitive rules so we can compete in this global economy called soccer? Remember, soccer's different than other leagues who are headquartered here in the U.S. We compete in a global economy one that is, you know, one of the the biggest in the world and the most expensive to compete in. So we're looking at how do we modernize and and develop commercial success for the next ten years. That's going to take a lot of different forms, whether it's different angles at sponsorship, new revenue streams. How do we study to go into things like fantasy and sports, particularly with the women's league? So I don't have the answer, the pat answer right now. What I do know is that. The first nine years have been characterized by this great combination of entrepreneurship, dynamic change, but also a bit of caution so that we develop something that's sustainable. And the one final thing I want to say is 
unlike many of my other, the leagues, the WNBA is part of the NBA. So there, I say this a little enviously, they get to access all the resources of the NBA as they do their growing, their 30 years. We're completely independent. So as we do this, we have to create a sustainable vision for a future. Lisa, how strong has the support been from the sponsor community? I, know, I believe you have uh, Budweiser, Verizon, several others. How has that been going? It's been going better than I could have imagined. When I came in, Budweiser and Nike were our, our two big sponsors. Nike had been with us for many years. And Budweiser joined in uh, the year of the World Cup. And they were really like quite a strategic partner in kind of building the awareness that we didn't have sponsors. When I came in, we created the Olympic style tournament. We created a challenge cup, like all those great written uh, media contracts with CBS and Twitch had to be completely thrown up in the air as we created a new competition called the challenge cup. And we created it with an eye towards really exposing more fans to our sports. Um, we were able to sign Procter & Gamble in secret, as well as Verizon and Google, because we created this great uh, competition. And we were able just, you know, happily to be the first team to return to sports. So we took advantage of that window of attention. And we're able to um, kind of post some of the biggest ratings increases of our sport, certainly in our history. And I think we were one of the few sports to actually post rating increases at all last year. You mentioned your status before as the preeminent women's soccer league in the world, but obviously there are a number of other entities in both Europe and Asia. How would you sort of assess the current sort of competitive, both from a player standpoint and a business standpoint, that competitive interplay with the other leagues? How about competitive as a really good word? <laughs> I think you just said it, Eric. It's competitive, no doubt about it. And um, I always use every opportunity in media to say to our great players like uh, Sam Kerr and Christine Tobin, come back, come back. It, the competition is going to bring out the best in our league because we want the best players. So we're looking right now in our strategic plan is how do we continue to improve the standards of women's soccer in the United States? And we've created a brand new relationship with U.S. soccer. That's our governing federation around this concept called high performance. And we're going to be partners in pushing the standards of our sport higher and higher to again attract them. That means better training facilities, better support, science, et cetera, everything you need to to be the best women's professional soccer league in the world. Lisa, as you look to the future and continuing to build fandom for the league, what is most critical besides the game broadcast? Is it social media? Is it tying in with youth sports? Is it telling the stories of some of the players? How are you thinking about marketing the league from a macro level? You know, first of all, we definitely look at all those things, Chris. But I think the, the concept that we're starting to formulate with our strategic vision is the, what is the experience of the fans? And I don't think anybody has really done a great job to describe what kind of experience do our fans want? That's the purpose of what we're doing. I can assure you that we're going to look at the next 10 years and say that experience might be really different for our fan group because they're so adept at so and so nimble at crossing over between attending games looking at things digitally, whether it's, you know, streaming sports, engaging socially, they're almost, our fans are almost leading the way into what kind of experience we want. What I will say is that 
the live sports experience always has to remain the best experience for our fans. When you look back on this year, I think every commissioner, every you know owner would say, what was the one thing you missed? There's no doubt about it. It was the fans. It was the players played in those stadiums. The broadcasters did an amazing job across the board, making the games look exciting and competitive, but it's not the same without them. And we've got to keep that live sports experience growing, but incorporate and integrate all the digital technology that we can to keep it, to keep that engagement and that experience really exciting. Well, the NWSL has really been one of the most remarkable stories during this uh, pandemic period, and we're really looking forward to continuing to follow and track uh, what you're up to post-pandemic. So thank you very much for spending this time with us on the podcast, and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing what's next for you guys. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Lisa Barrett again from the NWSL for spending that time with us here. And as we're getting into the news of the week here, uh, as we mentioned at the top here, uh, uh, we are taping this on Thursday the 18th, and news has just come down more than $100 billion, again, $100 billion in domestic media rights renewals for the National Football League. They are the king of American television. We knew this was coming. The incumbents are largely staying in place with their existing rights, but this is just a remarkable amount of money that takes the league well into the 2030s. Literally, the deals run through the 2033 season. Chris, you were obviously at the uh, at NFL at a era of uh, slightly smaller rights numbers here, but what's, uh, you know, this is very literally just minutes with uh, fresh here, but what's your immediate reaction? Yeah, it's, it's a great day for the NFL. It's not necessarily a surprise, but it is a great day in part because of the length of the term, Eric. I think this really does set the league up for the next decade. And there may be changes in the TV environment. There may be other disruptions, but the NFL has a very solid package with great partners. And I also think that the partners are are also getting something that's very important to them as well. They're getting programming that can really attract a big audience. Plus, they're getting access to this programming for their streaming services, which they're trying to build, which we've talked about before. So I think on, on all fronts, this is going to be a good deal. Yeah, and that was one of the things that really jumped out to me was the the streaming component on this because the NFL recognizes to keep this money churning in the way that it is for them, um, they're going to have to really make these games available on all these services. And so, and as we unpack this announcement, as you mentioned, these services that we've all talked about: ESPN Plus, Paramount Plus, Peacock, Amazon, and even Fox's Tubi, which is much smaller, but they're trying to make a go of it with there. They all have NFL game rights now. And so whether you subscribe to any or all of those services, the NFL is going to be part of that landscape. Yeah, I mean, it's great because there are fans who are not going to want to have traditional TV anymore and are going to be consuming content through streaming services. So now, in effect, the NFL is going where the fans are. The unusual part of this is the Thursday night with Amazon, which, as, as I understand it, is going to be exclusive other than in the local markets. And that will be the first time really you'll have a package like this exclusive to a digital only player, again, outside of the home markets. And we'll see what that does to driving new subs to Amazon or what the ratings of those games will be. But uh, that will be an unusual uh, element to the new package. Yeah. Although the other incumbent 
traditional broadcasters didn't really didn't want that package. There wasn't a lot of interest there. And even though we've sort of talked about in, in prior episodes that, you know, theoretically the NFL, you know, if they were to put a game on every night and, and they obviously in this weird season last year with COVID had games pretty much every day of the week amid the series of reschedulings, that's, you know, in a traditional sense, that's really not the case that the, the power of the NFL's television presence comes from this more sporadic cadence how they've got it set up yeah I don't I don't think one way or the other it's going to have a big impact on fandom what they do with Thursday night I think in in many ways it was additive when they launched that product you know several years ago but I I just think it'll be interesting because this will be the first true example of a digital only play which has been talked about for a long time and there have been one-off games done but this will be the first time there'll be a full season of NFL games on a digital only platform now, the one big outstanding question that we just don't have uh, immediate word on is what becomes the out-of-market package uh, Sunday ticket. It's been expected that DirecTV will not be continuing on. It's also been widely discussed informally that that's a product that would be very well suited for another digital player in the manner that we're discussing here. But there's just no immediate word on what's going to happen there. But once that gets done, that's going to be another significant chunk of change coming the league's way. Yeah, they've they've done a great job, and and they have continually done a great job of of really managing these media rights and building fandom and and making the games widely available while also generating a lot of revenue. I will be interested to see where the sports betting element comes out on these deals. Who would control the in-game promotion of sports betting? To what degree was that even referenced in these agreements? I'll be curious to see where that nets out because that's another big revenue stream uh, that may be coming down the pike here in the next five to 10 years in, in addition to where it's at now. Yeah, it wasn't immediately referenced here, and that may be something that we're just going to have to continue to unpack in the in the coming days here in future episodes of the podcast here. But uh, as we've referenced in prior weeks here, I think this is, again, something where the streaming service has really come into play because it's going to be very easy for a Disney or a CBS Paramount or whoever to put up that alternate stream if you want to just sort of segment that off in a way that sort of the mainline primary feed of a live game and have a more betting focused presentation elsewhere, these streaming services are very well positioned to do that. Right. And I, you're right. That is a way to segment it and make sure you don't hit people over the head with betting messages that don't want to hear them. Right. So m- much more to come on the on the NFL uh, front as we unpack this here. But uh, let's shift gears here. It's uh, been a very, very busy week for NBA superstar LeBron James. Uh, two big deals here. Let's uh, uh, do the first one here. And, and, and perhaps the bigger one is he's going to become a part owner of Fenway Sports Group. He is this is the parent organization of Major League Baseball's Boston Red Sox, defending Premier League champion Liverpool, Roush Fenway Racing, uh, New England Sports Network, Fenway Sports Management, a bunch of other assets. Braun and his longtime business partner, uh, Maverick Carter, they were already part of the Liverpool ownership group, but this spins them out into the uh, broader FSG holding group, makes them the first black shareholders of FSG. We've got an active NBA player now part of MLB ownership pending approval here. There's there's just a lot of interesting things to unpack here. Um, and even though he's uh, that uh, FSG share is going to be estimated at about 1% here, there's still a lot of history here as I as I read this. Yeah, it's, I think it's a good move for LeBron. It's it's great to be involved with multiple different leagues as he thinks about 
what he ultimately wants to do for his sports portfolio after retirement. So being with an organization that is involved in so many different leagues and has apparently aspirations to get involved in even more, I think makes a lot of sense for him. I think it's interesting that uh, unwritten part of this story is that NASCAR gets another win, having Michael Jordan involved with it earlier in the year, and now LeBron uh, is tied to NASCAR. I think that's great. Uh, And we'll see if there's synergies with some of LeBron's other businesses. You may remember he he raised $100 million for Spring Hill, uh, his production and media company, last summer from uh, Guggenheim and Elizabeth Murdoch and others. And so it'll be interesting to see whether there's some business synergies between what LeBron is doing on the production and content side and what's happening within the Fenway uh, universe. Yeah, so and that obviously sort of sets up another piece of generational wealth for for LeBron and, and for Maverick Carter. Uh, but this also sort of helps expand the tent for FSG. They they're taking this money uh, and in his involvement to sort of help expand what they they want to do and build out their portfolio. And obviously, LeBron's a great ambassador to help open up new opportunities. Yeah, and I, I you know we'll we'll again we'll have to see what he. He does in terms of active participation, and maybe that becomes more of a factor once he retires. But I think in the meantime, the the prominence uh, and his celebrity and his voice will be very helpful and important. And I think there will be things that uh, that will be synergistic between his other businesses and what FSG is doing. Yeah. Now, the other half of this is, is part of the sort of reshaping of Fenway Sports Group is that Redbird uh, Capital Partners, led by Jerry Cardinale, is also getting involved here at a much bigger stake. Uh, they're they're coming in with a $750 million investment that puts them at about 11% of the company, values Fenway Sports Group at uh, nearly $7.4 billion. And they be and uh, Redbird becomes the third largest shareholder in the operation behind John Henry and Tom Werner. Now, this is interesting because this is sort of an outgrowth of a prior failed SPAC deal where uh, Jerry Cardinale, who was involved in the Red Ball uh, SPAC group that we've talked about in prior episodes, they tried to put a deal together that was going to take Fenway public. That didn't come together, but this one did. So from the both the uh, uh, Redbird uh, rationale and the Fenway rationale, how do you sort of interpret this uh, particular private investment? Well, I think it's a, it's it's good for Fenway in the sense that not only is there capital to grow and to buy potentially new assets, but Redbird has great relationships in the sports industry, great track record. Uh, and so I think in, in many ways, Redbird, while they're a private equity investor, are really more like a strategic investor. And I think the benefits to, be, to Fenway will be, you know, as much the expertise and the relationships as, as the capital. And I, and I do think they're going to have some success as they, uh, as they find new things to buy and invest in. So in, in prior weeks, we sort of, uh, sort of alluded to the issue that uh, there's been a very quick rising interest of uh, private equity having um, and other sort of uh, SPACs and other alternative investments getting LP stakes and pro teams here. This situation really sort of kicks that into overdrive and comes in in a very big, very prominent way here. How do you see that whole LP situation now evolving now that we've got this sort of real big land, uh, landmark situation uh, stake in the ground here? I, I see it growing. And, you know, it's funny, the, the discussion over the last two months has been a lot around SPACs because there's been such a, a frenzy of SPACs. But perhaps as important has been this move 
among some of the sports leagues to consider and or actually allow private equity investment in LP stakes. And certainly when someone plunks down a $750 million check, it gets attention. And we know there are other folks out there, Arcdos and Dial and, and, and other private equity firms that want to be involved in this, are involved in this in some way, shape or form. So I think those private equity firms can bring real liquidity into the LP marketplace, can help uh, continue to drive valuations, and in many respects, add a new dimension of investor into these into these leagues. Now, this whole uh, discussion around uh, LP stakes, it brings to mind the old quote from John Mc the late John McMullen from 40 years ago when he was part of the Yankees, that there is nothing more limited than being a limited partner of George Steinbrenner. Um, <laughs> You know, and there was for many years resistance among many high net worth individuals of getting involved in this way, where there because there was no pathway to control, and you were just sort of there, part of the group, and you know, just having to be there for cash calls and what have you. And there wasn't a lot of necessarily a lot of upside in that position. Clearly, the thinking has now changed. Yeah, I mean, I think the the concern among certain high net worth investors is, oh, I'm just getting a glorified season tickets, and I'm right. having to pay nine figures for the privilege. I think the other big problem, though, Eric, historically was the liquidity issue. You know, you, you buy that that 2% stake or that 5% stake, and then sometimes it's hard to sell. And, and so now with the private equity firms being uh, potentially allowed in in a bigger way, there becomes that liquidity factor that is very helpful. So even if your rights as a limited partner are not that broad. If you're not on the board, if you're not necessarily making all the decisions about the club, but you know that you have an opportunity to sell that stake in a relatively easy way over the next three, five, seven, nine years, it's going to make those investments a lot easier to make. So the takeaway from your perspective is we should expect a lot more of this as 2021 continues to evolve here. I, I do expect it's subject to how much of it the leagues will want to allow or will be comfortable with. Sure. Well, and clearly in the case of, of this particular deal, and as you alluded to before, uh, Cardinale and Redbird, they already have a lot of existing relationships. They're on the Yes uh, Network board. This is a known entity. This is not somebody just coming in cold off the street. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I mean, the, the one thing I do wonder about, Eric, is when, when these teams are family owned, yes, they want to make profits, but there's also a real passion about winning a World Series or winning a Local Super Bowl. And maybe you spend a bunch of money on a coach or players. And on the other hand, if you bring private equity into those businesses, maybe the private equity player really just cares about returns right. in three, five, seven, nine years. So it'll be interesting to see how much those two classes of investors can really mesh uh, in, in, in where we go forward on this. And particularly uh, when you see team ownership really sort of thought of in some markets as community stewardship. And particularly if you think about you know, the hunts in Kansas City or some of these markets where, um, yes, there is, uh, as you uh, correctly indicate, a profit motive, but they really see this, that they're managing a community asset. Yeah, so there's going to have to be a balancing of that, but I do think that the owner, the current ownership will benefit from this new source of capital because as, as we've discussed before, the team values are getting so high, there aren't enough buyers out there in some cases. So I think right. having private equity uh, in the mix is going to be helpful. And again, while SPACs have gotten a, a lot of buzz and a lot of attention, this LP stake opportunity may actually be uh, even more impactful to the league and team business. 
So let's uh, shift gears to uh, LeBron deal of the week number two here, that after a very lengthy association with Coca-Cola, the uh, arch-rival PepsiCo has poached him, and he he has signed a long-term exclusive deal with PepsiCo, and he's going to work with them on a variety of uh, brands, both in the drink space and the snack food space, Uh, but particularly he's going to be the face of a new energy drink, uh, Mountain Dew Energy Rise. Mountain Dew Rise Energy, and it's a very interesting situation here that where you sort of hear about, you know, leagues wanting to get younger and brands wanting to get younger here, and we've got a 36-year-old, you know, player while still performing at a very high level, he's got a, there's a lot of miles on that uh, playing odometer here, and this is the figure that a big multinational corporation like Pepsi is rallying around. They're rallying around a true superstar and a, and, a, and a mega brand, and I think it shows the value of of the the athletes that are really at the top of the ecosystem, or with the NFL, the leagues that are at the top of the ecosystem. There is a premium for the best. Now, granted, there are a lot of fans today, and and the next generation of fans that know a lot about YouTube influencers, and they've got a lot of different people that they follow outside of the sports world. A lot of excitement around esports. But somebody like LeBron really raises and, and elevates the awareness and, and the relationships that he builds. So I can see why Pepsi is very excited about this, and especially in the context of launching a new product. Yeah, and beyond just his on-court uh, achievements, part of what makes him resonate to younger fans is that there is a social justice and community involvement component to this deal. And LeBron, particularly in the last year and the you know political and social events around us that have transpired, he was outspoken on a social justice context, has become even more so. And this deal is going to allow for that and, in fact, even encourage it. Yeah, and, and thinking about it in a, in a slightly different way, part of the reason athletes associate with certain brands is because they can leverage the resources of those brands to amplify that voice and to leverage uh, that, that relationship into additional community service and discussions around issues that matter. And so, you know, apparently Pepsi uh, was on the same page as LeBron in terms of those issues and that approach, and that, that makes a great partnership. And so uh, legacy uh, athlete sponsorship deal number two of the week is Tiger Woods, while he is even still in recovery from that awful auto accident in California last month, um, he is returning to video games for the first time in nearly eight years. And this was another situation where he was with EA Sports for a a number of years. And much like the Pepsi Coke situation with LeBron, 2K, the uh, chief rival of EA Sports, they poached him. And um, so now Tiger is going to be lending his name to a new, um, well, actually, they've already put out a prior version of the game, uh, the PGA uh, Tour 2K game, but now it's going to be bearing his name, image, and likeness. He's going to be an executive director of the uh, forthcoming iterations of this game. And, and you know, this is a guy 45 years old, also on the tail end of his playing career. And who knows even what's what he's going to be able to do health-wise given this auto accident, but 2K really saw the value in being associated with Tiger on a long-term basis. Sure. I mean, you know, he he is the biggest name in golf. He may be the greatest player of all time. He still resonates. I, th- I think his comeback has been watched and, and appreciated by millions. We'll see if he's got another comeback in him after this, uh, after this terrible accident. But I, I do think he uh, brings prominence to their product 
And 2K is seeming to make a, a bigger focus on sports. They have NBA, they have WWE, they have a new type of relationship with the NFL, not competitive with Madden, but new new types of games. For and now they're relation games. That's right. Yeah. And so I think I think it's a good match in that sense. And again, I think Tiger is 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 still the king in in the sense of uh, awareness and popularity, uh, despite his uh, you know late late later in his career. Yeah, and as we talked about in last week's episode, the gaming space really continues to grow and having these top-tier IP relationships that really makes a difference in a competitive marketplace. Yeah, you, you really do need to differentiate yourself. And again, I think um, we'll see how this um, this video game and gaming space ultimately intersects with things like betting, intersects with things like NFTs. Again, we're, we're really seeing the emergence of some new worlds that I think are going to cross together between esports betting and collectibles and, uh, and how that all comes together, we don't know, but I think there's some big opportunities there. And it'll be driven by big names and big brands. Absolutely. So as we close out this week's episode, let's take a quick look ahead as to what we're t- taking a look at in the space, uh, looking ahead here. And uh, from my standpoint, you know, again, as we're taping this, we're getting ready for the first four games. Uh, the tournament is back. My my bonnies are there. I'm I'm really excited. But the thing I'm really paying attention to is what's going to happen with these ratings. We we've been in a long drought and, and slide of top tier sports ratings, and a lot of it last year certainly was driven by pandemic, news consumption, political turbulence, presidential election. There was a lot of other really big things going on that were pulling large numbers of people away from live sports, but this is such a unique and special event. It's going to be really interesting to see, particularly as a lot of your sort of sports bar and restaurant restrictions that have been in place for a number of uh, months are, are being relaxed in a number of states. What happens with these ratings? Does this come back? Does the tournament resonate in a way that a lot of folks think it will and hope it will? Yeah, I'm I'm certainly curious about those ratings and looking forward to you know where March Madness nets out. On a related note, I'm I'm going to be interested in seeing how all the other engagement around March Madness nets out. For example, bracket games, certainly many of them are done digitally, but yep. for years people did them in their offices with their friends at work. People are not necessarily you know, at work with their friends. It'll be interesting to see how how much engagement the uh, the, the sports websites and mobile apps get during March Madness, how many signups there are for these bracket games this year. Is it a lot more? Is it a lot less? Obviously, sports betting will also be interesting to follow. So all of the peripheral engagement that might be done in somewhat of a different way this year will be interesting to assess. And uh, and certainly, uh, it's going to be a lot better than last year when we had zero for March Madness, but we'll, we'll see where it goes. Absolutely. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. Thanks for spending this time with us, and we'll see you next week.